give it up for our sound and tech too. Just love those guys. And they coordinated their outfits this morning. Do you notice that? They're like really leaning in. I, I was like, well, I got the black shirt. I was missing my snap back, but I left it at home. Sorry, so I don't have it this morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jess. Um, welcome. Hello. Um, I am on staff. Oh, thank you. I'm on staff here at Embassy Church, and actually this month is my two-year anniversary being here on staff. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I know. I was like, time is flying. Um, so I am originally from Buffalo, New York, which is not anywhere close to New York City. It's very far away. Um, it's closer to Canada, actually. So yeah, we have we don't have Starbucks. We have Tim Hortons. You were like, I don't know what that is. Two people do, but that's what I'm saying. Okay, we know about Tim Hortons. Look it up on the internet. Okay. So I originally came to Washington, D.C. to go to American University, which is right down the street. Okay, Minja. She goes, like, yeah, thanks. Okay. I feel like I'm like pointing out all my fans, but they're just, they go to the same school. Okay. Um, but it's fine. It's fine. Um, so I came to American University, and I thought I wanted to study broadcast journalism in French, and then I came out with a sociology and education degree, and it was all a very interesting time to be alive. Um, and so after that, I, I really felt like I was, you know, dreamed about maybe going to the West Coast, going on an adventure, finding a new city. Um, but God surprised me, as he happens to do sometimes, amen. And, and so he kept me here, and, and there's some other things that happened too, but here we are. So that's kind of a quick catch-up for you all. Um, some personal things, I really love to eat mangoes. Um, I'm really passionate about board games. I'm a great winner, not so great of a loser. Um, and I both talk and sing out loud. So you'll know I'm coming um, when you hear me in the hallway. So um, yeah, although it might sound a little bit strange, um, as Pastor Dave said, we'll be speaking, we'll be speaking, I'll be speaking, and you'll be hearing it with me, um, on healing the wounds of rejection. And um, when we talk about rejection, maybe it sounds weird for me to say that I'm really excited um, to share about this particular message this morning. Um, but I will share a little bit more about why in a minute. But first, shall we pray? Let's pray. Yeah, Lord God, we honor you this morning. We honor you with our love, God, with our hearts, Jesus, with our lives. We thank you for coming, for walking into the room, and for inviting us to linger with you in your presence. We ask that you guard our hearts from the enemy this morning and soften our hearts to your healing touch and gentle kindness. Show us the truth of your love this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. All right, so I'll start with a story. So last spring, um, our ministry leaders were very excited. We were preparing for our God Encounter weekends. Um, if you've been around for a few weeks, you've heard this term. If you're new, you're like... Everyone keeps talking about that. I don't know what it is. Um, it's an amazing retreat. There's um, worship and, excuse me, teaching, small groups, all this stuff. And most of all, it's a time that's set apart to just meet with God in a new way. Obviously, we know every time that we pray with God, we encounter him. But there's something really special about getting, um, switching to a new pace and being in a new place where God meets us in a new way. So last March, you know, we had our God encounter. We're preparing. We're all very excited. I'm cleaning things. I'm like, it's all, it's all exciting. Um, and I just received this beautiful text from Pastor Carol, and um, she's asking if I would teach the message on healing the wounds of rejection. I would teach it. So <clears throat> after I really processed through my humility, um, I was like, oh, me, that's fine. Um, I sat there thinking, ooh, Lord, isn't this something? Because if I'm being honest, there was a part of me um, that was kind of relieved because I was probably going to have to do the least amount of work for this teaching, which makes me sound a little bit lazy. But um, the reason is because... I knew already that I had the most experience personally with this um, spiritual stronghold, I guess we'll say. Um, in many ways, rejection um, had been a, a huge theme in my life. And so I was like, y'all, I got the 
in the bag. Like, I'm just going to go up there and be like, listen to the rejection, and we're just going to move. But the tricky thing about wounds of rejection, the thing I, I didn't anticipate is that they don't start out as deep flesh wounds. They start as a cut here, a scratch there. It starts where, with a situation where we are mistreated, hurt, or left out. Where we are told with actions or words that our presence is unwanted, that we by ourselves are not good enough, that we are not worthy of love or affection. And the problem is that every time we feel discarded or defective, unwanted or useless, the cut gets deeper and deeper. And then pretty soon we have a very large infected flesh wound on our hands. In her book, Uninvited, Lisa Turkers writes, rejection isn't just an emotion we feel. It's a message that's sent to the core of who we are, causing us to believe lies about ourselves, others, and God. It is the lie that we don't fit in, that we don't belong. When we feel rejected, we sit on the sidelines, on the bleachers, just hoping that someone will acknowledge us, that they'll, they'll reach out a hand to us, love us, choose us, want us, all the time, believing that no one ever will. I'm getting emotional just for you and me together. It's tough. I'm like, this is a drama soap opera already. So, um, as I'm saying, the wound starts with a cut, right? So if we're talking about the root of rejection, this lie that we don't belong can start in a very simple place. Oftentimes, it begins when we're quite young, you know, and we're born until we're about age five, really formative years. Um, and so oftentimes it can, and it can happen then, but it really starts with just a line that someone says or an, a small action that someone can do. And that line then becomes a label on us about who we are, about our identity. Um, and that label, like, like I said, becomes a lie, and the lie becomes a liability in how we think about ourselves and how we interact in every relationship and setting that we walk into. So the line, I don't want you, becomes the label, you aren't accepted. And then the label, you aren't accepted, becomes the lie that you aren't worthy of love or affection. And the lie, you aren't worthy, becomes a script of self-rejection. And it unleashes suspicion, doubt, hesitancy, and many other liabilities that hinder present relationships. I think one of the craziest things is many of us don't even realize that we have these so-called liabilities. We, you know, we put a smile on, we're like, it's fine, everything is fine, I'm feeling fine. How are you today? I'm fine. And so, but then we, we get into a new social situation, and then someone tries to get close, and you're like, oh, <laughs> you can keep your distance over there, because when you have a stronghold of rejection, or all of us, you know, experience it into some, to some degree, um, we feel the need to protect ourselves from further pain. Um, the worst thing, though, um, is how we project the lines of rejection we heard from our past on others and hold them accountable for words they never said. And worst of all, and I have felt this so deeply in my walk with the Lord, we catch ourselves wondering if God secretly agrees with those who hurt us. We feel unwanted by the love of the people who are supposed to love us the most. And then we look at, at the word of God and it says, God, you love me, but I, I can't believe that because what if you agree with everyone else in my life who says I'm not good enough, that I don't belong, that I don't fit in? When I was a kid, um, my grandmother would always joke around. She would call me a ham. And for those of you who are not familiar with this term, perhaps it sounds strange, um, cannibalist. It's not. It's fine. Everything is fine. Um, it probably sounds confusing, like I said. But for my grandmother, that meant um, that I was always performing, trying to make people laugh, doing very strange things, talking to myself, etc. You get the point. Um, my favorite people to entertain and make laugh were my parents. And I wanted nothing more than just to spend time with them and, and have their attention. Um, I always joke with my family that I'm the only one who understands what it's like to be the youngest sibling because my paternal grandparents are both the eldest in their family. My maternal grandparents, both the eldest. 
my mom is the oldest of two, my dad is the oldest of five, and of course my brother is older than I am. So I was like, guys, the struggle is real. And so they just, I felt misunderstood many, many times. Um, so if you guys are familiar with the five love languages, um, they have been really, really healing for me to identify with. So if you're not, um, it's this idea that we all receive love in unique ways and, and kind of have a tendency to give it in certain ways. So physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and gifts. Everyone always feels bad about having gifts as their, as their you know, love language, but it's not bad, it's not bad. Um, so my top two love languages are physical touch and quality time. I love nothing more than just sitting across the table with someone, having our eyes like creepily connected and, and sharing our life stories. Um, my, my brother and I are both extroverts, but it's interesting because both of my parents are introverts and they just really love to do their own thing like solo time, like give some space. And so, you know, my brother and I would be running around and I was always wanting to spend quality time with my mom. And I was like, mom, pay attention to me. And she was like, what are you doing? I'm not sure. Um, and so my first memory of this disconnect was when I was about three or four years old. And I remember, so my mom, um, she actually just retired. She's been a middle school art teacher for over 30 years, which is really crazy. That's a ministry in itself. But um, I always remember my mom working and um, respecting her so much for that. But when she got home, she was like really tired, exhausted, burnt out. And that's when I just leaned in. I was like, it's time for me now, mom, get ready. She was like, oh, okay. So I remember um, my mom was washing dishes and I like came up and I was like, mom, can I show you something? Like, come play with me. And she was like, not now, not now. And, and that's like, okay, Jess, if that's the worst thing that has ever happened to you, like we're playing a sad song on a violin for you, I'm so sorry. But the, the pro so it's an isolated instant, I'm the first to admit, it doesn't really sound that intense. Um, but for me, uh, the line, not now, honey, translated to the lie, I don't have time for you. And that turned into the liability, the, the lie that I believed about myself, that I was not worthy of my mother's time, her love, or attention. That by myself, um, without conditions, I wasn't worth loving. That I had to do something to earn her attention, to earn her love. And the more and more small, isolated incidents that happened as I grew up continued to prove that lie true to me. Every time I would be hanging out with, trying to like tag along with my older brother, and he'd be like, go back home, just like, we're playing with the boys. <laughs> I don't know what he said. And I'd be like, oh, no one loves me. Like, I just kept thinking um, that this must be true because every situation, not every situation, but there were situations that seemed to prove that that lie was a truth about me and my identity. As David Kyle Foster writes in Charisma magazine, this rejection can be overt or the result of neglect. And for the more sensitive child, happens to be me, um, the cause can be unpredictably subtle. For example, if a child runs home from school and bursts into the house with great excitement over what they've just experienced, but is shut down by punishment or shaming, that one incident alone can be painful enough to a sensitive child to create an unspoken interior commitment never to share their deep heart again. They have just learned that sharing a deep feeling can make them vulnerable to pain, so they erect a wall in their heart beyond which no one can enter. I started to do whatever I could to please my parents and to get their attention. So I was like, oh, okay, you like good grades? Get ready, mom and dad. Um, so I'd be like, mom, my report card. And she'd be like, woo, and I'm like, my mom looked at me, this is great, I'm so excited. And, and I just got into this cycle of performance, performance-based value. So um, my identity was not in um, who God said I was, but it was in what I looked like, um, how smart I was, which I don't know how our public education, you know, I'm not sure how I was trying to measure that, but I was. Um, how talented I was, all these things. And 
I was trying to kind of compose this internal resume to prove, look, I feel unworthy, but look, I am, I am. See, I'm worthy of love. And we try to prove it to people because we don't feel it deep inside. And so maybe you were always picked last for dodgeball or rejected by the boy or girl you had a crush on. Maybe your conception was a surprise to your parents and you were unwanted even from the womb. Maybe you had a parent walk away from your family or a friend stab you in the back. Maybe you have been ostracized, stigmatized, and told that you were not wanted. Yet the worst part is that the closer a person is to you, the deeper their rejection can wound you. Perceiving conditional love from those closest to us as children especially causes feelings of rejection and bondages such as performance orientation and drivenness. And like we mentioned before, to avoid more rejection, you start to make promises to yourself to avoid the physical pain of rejection in the future. Your heart tells you, protect yourself at all costs. Do not trust. Do not be fooled. Do not be vulnerable. Do not give yourself to others in a sacrificial way unless there is a reciprocal benefit to you. Do not commit to others on an emotional level because they will only hurt you and let you down in the end. It's a pretty sad way to live, isn't it? But we do this because rejection hurts. It physically hurts. In an article titled 10 Surprising Facts About Rejection, Dr. Guy Winch writes, the rejection piggybacks on physical pain pathways in the brain. MRI studies show that the same areas of the brain become activated when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain. This is why rejection hurts so much, neurologically speaking. In fact, our brains respond so similarly to rejection and physical pain that Tylenol reduces the emotional pain that rejection elicits. In a study testing the hypothesis that rejection mimics physical pain, researchers gave some participants Tylenol before asking them to recall a painful rejection experience. The people who received Tylenol reported significantly less emotional pain than subjects who took a sugar pill. So we know that rejection is a lie, but we have to wonder if God isn't trying to lie to us about our value, then where does this lie come from? And the reason that rejection wounds us so deeply is because it comes from the enemy of our souls. It attacks the very person that we are. It destroys our self-esteem and attacks our purpose in life. This is why it is one of the most common tools that the devil will use to destroy a person. He wants to fill our emptiness with unhealthy dependence on the acceptance of others. By doing that, he can get us so focused on the shallow opinions of others that we get completely distracted from deepening our relationship with Christ, the one who gives us eternal life, love, acceptance, comfort. I'd like to read for you a passage from Genesis 3, 1-6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat any fruit from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So the devil is quite strategic. And just like he did in the Garden of Eden, the enemy starts by planting seeds of doubt and deception in the gardens of our mind. He whispers to us, Did God really say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? Because you don't really look wonderfully made. And you're like, oh, you nasty. I don't think that. So you start to agree with him. And when we look to the spot of weakness he points to, this place that we already have felt of insecurity or hurt, it looks believable. I'm like, okay, I guess what you're saying in this moment of you know, doubt, it sounds believable. He plants the seed of deception. And we, in agreeing with it, add water. But the enemy cannot create 
Um, he can only in- imitate and perverse. So the seeds of deception and lies grow into weeds that look like beautiful flowers. I remember being young, and um, so my dad was always trying to find ways for my brother and I to build character. Um, and we lived in the suburbs outside Buffalo, and so we had this unruly driveway that there were all these like weeds popping up from in between, you know, the pavement. And I remember, I was probably like 10 or 11, and my dad was like trying to clean up, and he was like, um, guys, can you, can you go like clip the weeds? We need to clean up. And I was like, okay, dad, but like, are you going to pay me? (laughs) I don't know why I was just trying to, to get some entrepreneur situation happening. Um, and he was like, sure, I'll pay you a dollar to do the whole thing. This was not a one hour job, my friends. This was like the whole day for 10 year old me. So I'm like sitting there with the scissors, like sweating and I'm like, I like couldn't even finish. It was too much for me. But I, one of my strategies for trying to get out of this job was to point to the dandelions and be like, dad, look how beautiful these flowers are. They're interactive. You, you know, blow and make a wish, dad. Like this is, um, he didn't fall for it. He was like, those are weeds, Jess. Um, and in the same way, uh, the devil's weeds might look like flowers, but inside they are stealing life, sunlight, nutrients, and space from the gardener's floral plant. God is meant for our minds um, to be focused on things that are good and beautiful and of him. And he has, like, the human brain in general is just so incredible, right? And so God is the gardener of our minds, and he's planted all these beautiful things in his word for us to know about ourselves and him and others. Um, But when the devil plants these seeds and we agree and allow them to be watered, they will eventually grow into trees that bear fruit. And they don't just bear bad fruit. They will outgrow and overtake the good trees, causing disease and the drying up of healthy roots. Two years ago this August, a few members of leadership and staff of Embassy Church traveled to Bethel Church in Redding, California um, for kind of a renewal and recasting vision for our community here. Um, And at one point we visited this family, or that seems the foreman, and um, they were a part of Embassy Church for a year when they lived in D.C. and and now they're back in Reading. And they have this beautiful backyard. Like, I'm like, what is happening? The bouncy and abundance of the Lord. Um, And so uh, we're like taking some time and wandering through. And I'm walking through with Pastor Jess. You might not remember this, but um, we came across an orange tree and a lemon tree that were right next to each other. And I was pretty focused on trying to eat the citrus, like I'm really about sour foods, so I was focused on just the fruit, that was what was happening. But little did I know that Pastor Jess was about to drop some wisdom on me. She's like, Jess, see how both of the trees, their leaves look the same. That's why it's so important we bear fruit, so that you can tell what is happening on the inside. Matthew 12:33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So these trees, these weeds of rejection, they bear fruit in our lives. And they can take on many different forms, but it usually can include bitterness, anger, inferiority, rebellion, poor self-image, distrust, jealousy, perfectionism. Oftentimes, you can tell that you have a struggle with this if you kind of anticipate negative reactions from others. Um, People question you, you become agitated or angry. Um, If you have the need to be considered an expert. Um, If you sometimes have mood swings that come out of nowhere. Um, A profile of someone who struggles with rejection, um, so you feel separated and left out. You struggle with namelessness and you feel restless and unsettled. Um, Rejection really is an identity issue. It's because this line and lie and liability have said something about our identity. And if our identity is placed in the love that people do or do not show, um, if it's placed in our performance when we're inherently imperfect creatures, then we'll always have an unstable and unstable identity. And we're always looking for someone to acknowledge us and recognize us. 
Um, and then the anger, that might come as surprising because you're like, oh, someone with ejection is probably sitting in a corner, like crying, they're just like doing their own thing. But the anger it comes because um, it can often be pointed at someone who we feel is more accepted than we are. And often, I mentioned perfectionism before, we, we overreact through perfectionism because um, if we have a root of rejection, we constantly try to make adjustments for it. Makes sense. If you feel bad about yourself on the inside, you attempt to do something on the outside to compensate the problem. The fear of being rejected or not good enough or unwanted develops into futile perfectionism, and we become workaholics trying to earn our self-worth by what we do. The truth is, friends, rejection steals the best of who we are by reinforcing the worst that's been said to us. It unleashes suspicion, doubt, hesitancy, and liabilities, like I mentioned before. And so we disguise ourselves. We hide, we put up walls, knowing that as desperately as we want people to be close, we cannot let them in. Rejection has a way of destroying a person's life in a way that few other things can. And the sad fact is that the number of people who are affected by rejection is staggering. And if we want to be all that God has created us to be, then overcoming rejection and its effects is vital and absolutely essential. It's so crazy to me that as God's children, we have access to the word and the truth that it says about us. That there are so many of God's children who do not know God's love for them on a personal level. When I was at American University, I was part of uh, Chi Alpha Campus Ministries. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing group. And looking back, I always tell people that being part of a small group changed my life. Um, my freshman year was very difficult, and I struggled with many things. And um, part of what made it so hard is because um, I didn't know who I could trust to tell that I wasn't okay. So I was like, oh, everyone thinks I'm happy and smiling. So, okay, just keep smiling, just keep smiling. And, and it was just a mask, and I was hiding behind it, but I, I didn't feel safe enough to let my guard down. And I always kind of had this thing that you can maybe get the sense from what I've shared that I, I love to talk and I love to meet new people, but I kind of had this dynamic that I didn't even realize that I had, where I always felt way more comfortable asking others questions about themselves. If they always were talking about themselves, no one had to ask about me. No one had to know. I didn't have to open up or be in the spotlight in that way. Um, and so when I eventually finally went to a small group, I remember this idea of finally sharing and having people listen to me and not run away. Like I was, for some reason, I just believed the lie that if people really knew me, like they wouldn't love me, they'd reject me, they'd think I wasn't good enough, whatever. And so um, this idea of, of being in a space and feeling fully loved was so foreign to me. Um, last fall, I was able to go through kind of some, some inner healing things, um, the pastoral counseling. Um, she gave me some scriptures to kind of meditate through and pray through and, and hear what God was saying to me through them. And um, one of them, God was saying, Jess, you see yourself as the feeder of love because you don't want people to feel as forgotten as you And I remember um, being at the, the first ever God encounter I went to, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but don't worry, still come back next week, it's going to blow your mind. But it was during the teaching on the cross, and um, is it okay if I said, oh, well, I'm just going to do it because I'm here. Um, so <laughs> we watched a clip from The Passion, and in it is uh, Jesus is being flogged and whipped and rejected and about and nailed to the cross. And there's a woman, one of his disciples, she's in the crowd and, you know, dramatically it pans to see her face. And like Jesus is just like bloody and wounded, which is really, of course, like uncomfortable and, and horrifying to watch anyone be flogged. Um, but your savior, right? So like he, he turns around and she's looking at him. And then she turns away, and she turns her back to him. And I realized that by believing this lie, 
that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't loved, um, that I couldn't be accepted, was like taking Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that said, I was rejected so you could be accepted. I was killed so that you could live. I was denied so you could be loved. I was looking at that cross and said, God, it's not enough. It's not enough for me. I have to work to earn what you've already done. And it's crazy because it develops this kind of root of pride in you. You're like, all right, like, I just got to be the bee's knees and see what's up because no one else is going to take care of me, so I have to take care of other people because God doesn't love me and, and I don't want anyone else to feel as bad as I do. Friends, the truth is that we were created to be loved, accepted, and appreciated. And rejection is, as we know, is an antichrist spirit because it opposes the very nature that God created in us. Only God can be trusted as the source of our identity. John 8.32 says, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Isaiah 54.17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. God never wanted us to feel rejected or abandoned. That was never his plan. He desires for you to know who you truly are and to realize how deeply he loves, accepts, and appreciates you so that you can live out the fullness of what all God has ordained you to be. God's word tells us that without being rooted and grounded in love and acceptance of God, we cannot experience his fullness in our lives. In this past teaching series, every week we read Ephesians 13, um, excuse me, Ephesians 3, 16 and 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The truth is, the more fully we invite God into our lives, the less we will feel uninvited by others. And you don't have to convince God you don't have to offer free food so he'll, he'll come to your event. Like, God is running and excited to be invited by you. I love Psalm 23, um, verse 6. It says, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word follow in the original Hebrew is radaf, meaning to pursue or chase. God's goodness and love will chase us will run after us, will pursue us all the days of our lives. Friends, there is nowhere we can hide where his love will not run after us. There is no wall that we can put up around our hearts that God doesn't just karate and kick down. It is in his nature to pursue us, to follow us, to fight for us. And I love that what the enemy has, has used for evil, but that God will turn for good. And we can let our past experience work for us instead of against us by allowing it to help us sense the possible pain behind other people's actions and reactions. I was so challenged when I was thinking about this. Do we walk into situations prepared with the, with the fullness of God inside of us, free to look for ways to bless others? Or do we walk into a situation empty and dependent on others to look for ways to bless us? In this way, I think our souls and our stomachs are alike. I always joke before I like, go out to, to meet um, some friends for dinner, if I had like an early lunch, I'm like, I really need to eat this meal so I don't go crazy, have a piece of fruit or a granola bar or whatever, just trying to keep it, keep it real. And so um, we have to pre-game social situations in this way too. Not with alcohol, but with the fullness of God's spirit. To say, God, my love comes from you, and I don't need it from anyone else. I don't have to go thirsty walking to the wrong source. 
God is our healer, not only of physical wounds, but of the emotional wounds that have defined us, perhaps for our whole lives. And Jesus didn't just die so that we could make it through or survive. He died so that we could live abundantly. Ephesians 1, 3-6 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. I love this passage of scripture. Even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ. Do you know that you are chosen? That God thought of you when he was on the cross? He said your name in his head. He, he heard your name in his heart. It was tattooed there. It was just for you that he died so that you would know that you were chosen. That even if everyone else forgot about you, didn't want you, walked away from you, you were chosen by him. I love it. We belong to his dear son. Isaiah 53, 3-5 says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. It was Christ alone who was forsaken. The Father's back was to him. It was Jesus who groaned in the pain of utter aloneness and separation from the Father. It was Jesus who cried out in the pain of rejection so that we would not have to. People always like to say, oh yeah, like Jesus experienced every temptation there was, blah, blah, blah. And even though it's in the word, I was like, that is not true. Jesus does not know what it feels like. Fill in the blank. And I realized as I was kind of going back on, on certain memories that it in, a, in ways held me captive. I felt anger towards God because not only did I think that, that he agreed with whatever lie you know, that was spoken about me or my identity, but that he himself had rejected me in that moment. And I remember um, kind of praying through, I, I shared that small incident that happened with my mom when I was three or four, and as I revisited, revisited that moment in prayer, I saw it, you know, I was like, I don't know, crying. I like, like to cry, as you can see. But I was like walking up the stairs and being like, oh, my mom doesn't love me. She, I have really great parents, so I'm sorry, mom. But anyway, um, I'm walking up the stairs and I sit alone in my room, but I'm not alone. Jesus is sitting next to me and he's holding my hand and he says, you're mine. You are mine. You are mine. You belong to me. I want to listen to you. I'm here. Let's talk. And when I realized, I like told myself, side note, I was like, just like, choose this one time not to cry. But it's happening. So, <laughs> excuse me. Flick it off. All right. <clears throat> That's why you really wear glasses. So you can just, they're hater blockers. Okay. Um, so he was there, and, and I think that's the real thing, right? Because you can go to a counselor, you can go to a friend, you can go to a church service, and everyone can tell you, Jesus loves you, like, it's so great, wow, like, I could say all these things to you, but there is nothing that comes close to the soul-piercing power of hearing Jesus say to you, you are mine. Those are the moments hold on to because the thing is and this is funny Jonathan was sharing this with me this morning and, and he was like yeah like most people know this scripture like no weapon formed against me shall shall prosper 
Like the great thing is that it doesn't say no weapon shall ever form against. No, like you will have weapons that will be formed against you. They just will prosper. And it's time that we start choosing to agree with our Heavenly Father, opposed to the enemy of our souls. I got in such a rut where even though everyone around me was like, Jess, you're loved, you're appreciated. I was like, no, 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 no. Because I, it was more comfortable for me to believe the lies, like a security blanket. It was just what I knew. And so walking through this process with community, with, with people who choose to love me and, and, and see me through it, um, it's kind of crazy. You have to start pulling out those weeds, and it's not an overnight job. It'll probably cost more than one dollar in labor. Like, it, it takes time. But, man, if we just choose to get into God's presence daily, he's just longing to tell us that we belong to him, that we're accepted, that he already died so that, and was rejected so that we don't have to be. So I think there are really practical steps we can take. Um, we can be aware of the ways that our hearts respond in certain situations. Um, are you shutting down? Uh, do you want to walk away? Do you want to not show up? To and we have to win the battle for our minds. We have to unroot these thoughts of unworthiness and tear down lies and plant the truth. I really recommend looking at Google, who does God say I am? and just really read through the scriptural truth that God preaches about your identity. I'm really encouraged by the fact that Jesus himself told us that life will be so very hard at times. It is the human experience to be pressed and knocked down and kicked right where it hurts. It is also the human experience to sustain wounds. But in order for our wounds to heal, we cannot just slap a bandage on a dirty cut and call it a day. We must go through the painful process of allowing that wound to see the light of day, to allow it to be cleaned, however much it might sting. And sometimes, when the cut is so deep, there is nothing we can do but let the great surgeon in to do his thing. We must stop trying to stitch something up that really should just be left to the professional. We'll want to fix ourselves and make things better and tell everyone that it's going to be fine. But what a gift of humility when the Lord says, you can't fix this and you weren't supposed to. Lay down on the table. It's time for surgery. I'm going to remove these thorns. I'm going to remove these wounds. And I will replace them with a new creation, with new flesh, with a new heart. That is available to us each and every day, and especially this morning. Despite the comparisons that make us feel as though God loves other people more, he draws us near. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We have the choice this morning to hold fast to Jesus and remember that the breaking of us will really be the making of us. A new us, a new you, a stronger you, strengthened not with the pride of perfection, but with the sweet grace of one who knows an intimate closeness with his or her Lord. Scriptures say he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This acceptance is incorruptible and unconditional. The last thing I wanted to share was, um, I think it was two, two years ago, um, and there was a conference here, which was very exciting. We, we are blessed to sometimes hold um, and host conferences um, from visiting groups. And... Um, I remember just in the hustle and bustle of everything, feeling the need to just kind of step aside and, and, and be with the Lord. And, um, he shared with me, Jess, you don't see yourself as a child of God. You see yourself as a servant of God. You think you know that, um, that my love is available to everyone else, just not you. Um, and... 
I realized, like, that was kind of a wake-up call because I was like, I guess that makes sense. Wow. Like, I started to realize all these things. And um, recently, the Lord uh, showed me this picture. And um, so it's really cool. If you guys don't know, um, Noelle doesn't know I'm going to do this, but Noelle runs her an awesome dog walking business and she's an animal whisperer. It's really crazy. Um, and so she has this pack of dogs that just respond to her and they're like, yes, where do you want us to go? We'll go. And um, when she was pregnant with Ezekiel, um, her, her brother Jonathan and another has also helped out, but um, Jonathan and I are dating and so I was like, oh, let me come on a walk with you, like pretending I'm going to get exercise. And um, I did. It's fine. I walked some things, but I just let him do the work. The point is, um, the Lord was showing me this, this image because um, Noel and then Jonathan also inherited, they have this whistle that they use for the dogs to come close. They're like, did I do it right? Okay, maybe not. I'm not in the business. Okay. Oh, they did. There you go. So they have this whistle, and it's so crazy because you have dogs of all different breeds, shapes, sizes, um, abilities. Noel's got it going. And all sorts of different situations, home life, whatever. When they hear that whistle, they all run up and join the pack. And the Lord, like, showed me this image, and I was like, yes, God, like, I know that you love Jonathan, like, he's very handsome, yes, okay, like, I was like, what's happening here? But God showed me that, that he's the leader of the pack, and that he has a special call just for us. And the Lord says, Jess, I'm training you to know the sound of my whistle, of my call to obedience, not so that you would serve me better, but so you can be right by my side and experience everything with me. How beautiful is that? That God says, I'm leading, I'm, I'm the creator, I'm everything, I'm the Alpha and Omega, and I don't just want you by my side so you can be my servant. I want to invite you in. Come, I'm calling for you. Join me. Don't go down that path. Come with me. I want you right by my side. Let's journey together. I've always belonged, but I didn't know it. I've always been loved, but I didn't know it. I've always been accepted, but I didn't know it. We are chosen and treasured and loved. That's what the scripture says. We sang this morning, we are children of God. I am a child of God. I belong to the Father. I am Christ's friend. The Father is always for me, never against me. The Father will never forget me. I have always been loved by him. There is nothing that can separate me from the Father's love. This has been such a huge breakthrough that God has brought for me in my life in the past few years. But the best part is that it's not just for me. It's, it's for all of us. It's for all of us. I think there's something so important about admitting that we don't, we don't know everything and that there's still so much to learn. And it's taken a lot to just kind of break down these lies, like I said, and, and accept the truth. But we can remember it that he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This acceptance is incorruptible and unconditional. Our identity is in who God says we are. Not what the world says, not what friends say, not what people who walked away from us say. Our identity is in God. I'd love for us, um, as we close out, um, if right now that, that we would kind of sit with um, the Lord and ask him to reveal a time when we felt unwanted or unloved. And as the worship team comes up, um, I just invite you, this is um, something I learned a few years ago about kind of visualizing where we feel in relation to God. And, and so you can close your eyes, you can keep your eyes open, but we just imagine um, that you're in a field and it's open grass um, and that Jesus is there. There are trees around you, all these things. 
And where are you? Are you sitting next to him? Are you standing far apart? Lord, we invite you, even now, God, to come and show us. Lord, show us the places that we've been hurt, God. Show us the truth about the lies that have been spoken to us, God. Father, I thank you that this is not just an overnight job, but that it takes community to walk out this healing. Thank you that every time we feel hurt or unwanted, God, you respond with open arms. So Lord, just show us, even now, God, as as we worship, Father, um, show us where our heart has been divided, God, where our heart has wanted to listen to truths from you, Lord, but, but has also sort of believed the lies that the enemy spoke about us. Show us, Lord. Take us back to those moments, God, however painful they were, Lord. Show us, God, where you were. Lord, we ask, where were you when this happened, God? Where were you when this happened? I thank you that when I thought that you were far away, that you were absent, that you didn't care, Lord, that instead you were sitting right next to me. You were holding my hand. You were protecting me for something for the future. You were saving me for something greater. Thank you for all the blessings that come out of these hurts, God. Things, places, and times where we have felt passed over, God. Really, you're just saving us for a better opportunity because you want us somewhere else. Lord, I thank you that your plans for our good are not just for everyone else. They're for us individually, God. Lord, we praise you, God. We just invite your truth to rain down on us, even now, Lord. Yeah, Holy Spirit, speak to us.